The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of the Spectator, and this week my guest is the Financial Times reporter Tom Burgess, whose new or newish book is Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. Now I say newish because the book's been sort of reborn in that some of its subjects attempted to shut it down. And Tom, I'd like you to start by maybe telling us a little about that story. You've just fresh from a triumph in the High Court. Yeah. Hello, Sam. Fresh from the High Court. A few days ago, as it happened almost exactly three years to the day after I was in, I reached a godforsaken village in Kazakhstan and, and went sneaking around in the back of the car meeting the survivors of a massacre and others who'd been tortured by the ruling kleptocrat. I was in the, the High Court trying to fend off this attack on, on the book that contained the story of that massacre and, and really the fruits of five years wandering the world, trying to understand how corruption works today and, and, and what this international kleptocracy is that's emerging, right? this, this rule through corruption. And, and there I was next to my publisher and the, the large legal team, waiting to see if this London company controlled by two of the oligarchs who appear in the book would succeed in having it censored or... I I found myself occasionally wondering in the kind of Alan Partridge way of of, of how precisely copies of the book would be destroyed if that's what ended up happening. I mean, do they get pulped into... I think he uses the brilliant expression word porridge. Do they get (laughs) pulped into it or do they get burned? Sort of slightly more historically resonant... Anyway, you know, essentially what, what was happening was this, yeah, this London company controlled by these, these oligarchs. They're called Alexander Mashkevich and Patok Shadiev, oligarchs from the former Soviet Union, barons of a huge mining empire that came out of the, the privatisations at the end of the Cold War and who've expanded into Africa and who appear at, at some length in the book. They, they through this, well, this London company, they control was attacking the book in the courts. And to our absolute delight, the judge threw it out in a matter of hours at the very first hearing. And the <laughs> the book very quickly became a bestseller. The um, Streisand effect. Of which we yeah, the Streisand so effect, yeah. Now, I've, I, I'm afraid I can't remember, maybe you can, exactly what it was that someone said about Barbara Streisand that she objected to. That part of the story, I think, might be slightly lost to history. Yeah. <laughs> but but, but, but the, the point is, isn't it, is that someone in some, I think, quite obscure publication or part of the internet said something about Barbara Streisand that Barbara Streisand objected to and had she not made a fuss about it no one would have paid any attention but she did make an enormous fuss and the whole world found out about this thing and I, I think it's fair to say that something like that has, has, has happened this time and um, it was an extraordinary moment I've got to say like the, the, the intensity of sitting in the court when after all these years of whether it be in that Kazakh village or in the diamond fields of Zimbabwe or in, in Moscow or indeed in actually London these days, p- persuading people, persuading sources to take serious risks, you know, risks to life and limb to trust me with this information. Sitting there and thinking, if I've screwed this up in some way, you know, we were confident. We, we, were, we knew we were right. <laughs> we knew we were, this book was written in the public interest. But that doesn't necessarily mean you, you win against, you know, formidable legal attack. I was thinking, you know, if I, if I mess this up in some way and if we lose, um, and if this book is somehow, somehow censored, then I would have felt that I had pretty dramatically let down those people. And so the relief when the judgment came through w- w- was massive. And, and, and now my delight that many, many more people are, are reading the, you know, the results now of these courageous sources trusted me. Now, what was it for those who haven't been following the story, that these oligarchs, or rather the company that they control, which I think is part of the story, isn't it, complained of. The company is called, I always get it, it's an ENRC? 
NRC, yeah, Eurasian Natural Resources Corporation. And what, what was it that they were suing you for? The actual bit of the book that they sued on were passages where I write about the suspicious deaths of some people who were potential witnesses in a big corruption case into this company in the UK. Now, what they didn't sue on, it was an extraordinary moment when the judge asked their, their barrister, what about the various allegations of corruption in this book? To be clear, you, you've decided not to sue about those. And the, and the barrister for, for this, the oligarch's company said, yeah, we're, we're, not, we're not complaining about those. Now, the, the, the way to understand the significance of all of this is to read the, the judgment, which is a fantastic document and a blow for free speech, and which, which has been published. But that was, yeah, that, 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 was the, that was the grounds on which they chose to sue. Essentially, they tried to sue on a meaning that isn't in the book. They tried to say that I had written that a London-registered holding company murdered some people. And, you know, I'll, I'll leave it to your erudite listeners to, to, to work out whether that seems like a, a reasonable proposition or someone that someone could put forward. All right. Well, the book itself. Now, it is, it is a web, as you said. It follows the dirty money from, you know, Central African republics to Central Asian republics to the city of London to, you know, kind of gangster bars in Brooklyn. It's all over the place. What was the thread with which it began? I mean, how did you, you know, first start looking into this and what, what, what do you follow through? I guess ENRC is a very central one. But... Yeah, but this really begins for me 12 years ago in Nigeria, actually, a country which isn't in the book. But I was the West Africa correspondent for the Financial Times. And so I was running around covering coups and these simmering conflicts and terrorism and refugee crisis and, 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 and so on. But also because I was there for the FT, I was trying to get my head around the oil industry. Yeah, Nigeria, Nigeria is this, this huge petro-economy. Everything runs on oil money. And one day there was a sort of political crisis and we got word that there had been an outbreak of violence right in the middle of Nigeria in a city called Jos, which is actually this beautiful city on a plateau. Like John Major famously worked there in his youth. And it's, you know, Nigerians remember it wistfully as this, this lovely spot they could escape to. Anyway, it's not that anymore. And I got to Jos and the narrative was that there has been this massive outbreak of violence between Christians and Muslims, or, you know, more specifically between certain ethnic groups. And on the, there, there was a shoot-on-site curfew, but we managed to move around a little bit and go into some of the areas where the violence had taken place. And it was a nightmare. You know, there were, in the first place we went to, there were pieces of human bodies. And then we got out to the village where it was whispered that the worst of the violence had happened. And that village was like nothing I've seen with my own eyes before or since that was it was littered with burned bodies the bodies of women had been crushed into a well and then there was this commotion among the kind of burial group that had taken us there and they came out of one of the houses bearing this kind of lump of charcoal which was which had been a baby and I wrote my news story 300-400 words and then I uh, I wrote a little bit more but but, but essentially you know, grappling with the the narrative that anyone uses about these, uh, the, the foreign press tends to use about these outbreaks of violence. I've seen similar things in, you know, Eastern Congo and so on, which is that essentially this is kind of tribal, ethnic. The, the, the undertone is that these, you know, these, these African villagers have some sort of brutality that's always waiting to burst out. I was really haunted by that experience and for, for, for years and I, I dug and dug deeper into what was going on there really really locally to begin with and actually what you start to see is that the, the sort of ethnic rhetoric that the local bosses use to whip up this violence is is propaganda right it's a cover and what's going on is the functioning of a totally corrupted state of a, of a kleptocracy yeah where corruption is the system it's not kind of like a, a misfiring of the system. It is the system. Nigeria is essentially a huge pot of oil money. 
yeah, the big global oil companies, Shell and so on, they go into Nigeria and they buy oil from whoever happens to have, whichever faction happened to control Nigeria that day, right? Even when these companies aren't directly paying bribes, they're putting money in the treasury for it to be looted later. And then the, the, the ruling elite of the day, they filter some of that oil money down to maintain control. And so what you have in places like Joss is a constant struggle for control of that capillary of the oil money coming down. And this is not politics by consent, right? This is not me saying, I, Sam Leith, put myself forward as governor of Plateau State. Here are my achievements in, in public policy. Look at the improved roads. Look at the um, reduced child mortality statistics and so on. No, that's all. None of that happens. It's just a game of theft. So the only way you can keep control is through fear and violence on the one hand and patronage on the other. You either buy people off or you scare them into submission. And beyond that, you just use ethnic rhetoric. You, you, you thieve and you say to people, essentially, if you put yourself in this category of this particular faction, of this particular ethnic group, you can be with me and I'll feed you, almost literally. And if not, you're on the outside and we're coming for you with guns and torches and whatever it may be. But it's not some primal ethnic hatred that's driving this. It's the corruption that's driving this. And the ethnic hatreds are being stirred up by these corrupt elements. Now, that was the big realisation for me. And I wrote my first book, The Looting Machine, essentially about this, how the oil and mining industry is complicit and in some cases creates the corruption and the conflict that goes with it across Africa. And then about seven years ago, I think it's 2015, that book came out in 2015, so about 20, 2015, early 2016, I was at the Frontline Club, a brilliant war correspondence club in, uh, in, in London, a very merry place, brilliant. We did an event on corruption and I talked about my book and took questions at the end and a guy at the back put his hand up and he was, as I remember him, he was wearing quite a colourful, frilly shirt. I would learn that, you know, that was his sort of preferred smart outfit. And bald on top, glasses, a big sort of flat smile. And put up his hand and says, yes, it's really interesting um, hearing about corruption. And it's, it really is a problem everywhere. You know, I, I, I spent a while working um, in the London office of a Swiss bank. And I can tell you, there was a lot of dirty money going through there. At which point, obviously, my eyes bulged. And I thought, right, OK, I'll just, I'll just come out with some waffle. And then I'll hunt this guy down before he goes. So anyway, I went and grabbed him. And we went to the bar of the front line after this event and bought him a drink. We had a beer and started talking and he told me his name was Nigel Wilkins. And I said, so you, you, you worked in a Swiss bank in London and you're, you're here talking to me. I mean, this, that sort of breaks the omerta, doesn't it? And it turns out Nigel is just this extraordinary iconoclast who has sort of t essentially taken a job in a Swiss bank as a one-man Trojan horse. You know, he was a... Yes, in, in he, a book full of baddies, he's the one, he's the one who comes out, emerges out of it rather well. Right, well, you asked me about the thread. Nigel is the thread, really. So, so you know, I'd been, I'd been, I'd been encountered various the nefarious characters in the book in, in Africa, and I went on to encounter them in the former Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and, and so on. But Nigel, <laughs> I said to Nigel, look, can I buy you lunch? He said, yeah, you absolutely can. He wasn't working in the Swiss bank anymore, and we went for lunch at the Globe on the South Bank, which is near where the FT's office were, was at the time. And, and you know, we, we had lunch. And I sort of said, so Nigel, you, you know a lot about what was going on in this Swiss bank, do you? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, can you tell me about it? He said, yeah, I can. And as it happens, actually, I started, I was the compliance officer, which is a kind of ludicrous position in the Swiss bank. You know, the guy's supposed <laughs> to stop dirty money going through it. I mean, come on. Uh, and, you know, he was, he was thoroughly ignored by his colleagues. But they were so confident in their... In, in the sort of their, their authority, I suppose, and the code of silence that they would swan off to airports and the city champagne bars from this office that's on, it's on Cheapside. It's like 100 metres from the Bank of England. They would go off from their offices. This is around the time of the financial crisis. And Nigel would just have a little snoop around and discover that they'd left on their desks the kind of innermost secrets of the Swiss bank, like lists of lists of who the real people were behind the front companies and behind the Swiss accounts. And Nigel just starting to feel a little bit like James Bond, as he told me, although he's the least likely James Bond you can imagine. 
Anyway, he would he started photocopying this stuff and just taking it home to his flat in Kensington, and and, and putting it in these kind of big, you know, box files, and, and writing in biro top secret on the side yeah, of them. So it's quite a little bit illegal. Yeah. <laughs> well, but this is actually a crucial point about so much of this stuff. Where is the letter of the law and where is the spirit of the law? So Nigel, as I show in the book, would eventually get into a lot of trouble for doing this. But he would say, well, OK, you're, 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 he, he, there's this sort of Kafkaesque moment, terrible, when he's later working at the city regulator. At the time, I think by then it was called the Financial Conduct Authority. And... They start looking into the same Swiss bank, doesn't exist anymore, it's called BSI. Or, 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 sorry to correct myself, they don't start looking into the Swiss bank, but the Americans do. Nigel, years earlier, has said to them, I think there's lots of dodgy stuff happening at the Swiss bank's London office. Anyway, no one does anything, but years later, the Americans announce that they're looking into this bank abetting tax evasion, and Nigel goes to his bosses in London and says, Actually, I, I, before I even worked here, when I was in the Swiss bank, I, I, I did, as a compliance officer, as I'm bound to do, I made a disclosure. I said, I, I think there's bad stuff. I think there's maybe, you know, concealment of assets and so on going on at this office around the corner from the Bank of England. I think you should look into it. Nothing ever happened. But here we are again. The Americans are looking into it. Now, as it happens, I have these boxes of files at home. Can, can I bring them in? And, he, you know, emails a couple of them over. Anyway, what happens is this extraordinary moment where... The, you know, the, the, the watchdog, the city regulator, the, the body that is supposed to protect us all from bankers, but also from, um, you know, the world's kleptocrats, turns on Nigel and says, this is an outrageous violation of client, client's privacy. You must be marched from the building and fired. So anyway, these boxes continue to sit in Nigel's flat. And his position is, if you're a compliance officer, if you're anyone, you are obliged to declare to the police suspicions that a crime has been committed. It's a crime not to. And it's very, very explicitly a crime if you're the designated money laundering reporting officer, as it's called, within a bank, which Nigel was. And it's also a crime to destroy evidence. You're supposed to retain evidence. This is all under a thing called the Proceeds of Crime Act. N Nigel followed the letter of that act and the system swallowed him up, chewed him up, and, and spat him out. But what was in those boxes? You know, I was saying to him, Nigel, what is in these boxes that you've got in your flat? He said, well, well, I can just give them to you if you like. I said, yeah, well, I would it's like about them, meeting, actually, meeting in cocktail five or six, I think, in your account of it. In the uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, you he, he was the third person in that, incidentally. I was wondering why you did that, because you do describe your meeting and your courting of Nigel over these lunches at the Globe, but you describe it as meeting a reporter. Yeah, I... I, I, well, I, I mean, I do reveal in the footnotes, I do say this is me. Yes. But I wanted to keep myself out of the book. It, it, I mean, it, it, it's meant to be, uh, no, no, not to disguise, I, I think it's right to declare, you know, where you walk on stage. And I did that in the notes. But I, just, I, I, I don't think really scene. interested in me, really. I think yeah, I wanted to tell the story. You know, I'm like, this is, yeah, come back to this maybe, but, you know, the great models of this kind of storytelling are the In Cold Blood and so on, you know, where, 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 where the... The reporter is invisible. So that, yeah, that's why I did that stylistic thing, really. Well, this, I mean, Nigel is a very good fulcrum because, in a sense, you know, what's fascinating about the book to Westmore is, is that it, it accounts for how the kind of Nigerian model kleptocracy that you describe, where the relationship between power and money is extraordinarily direct, is, if you like, funneled, transferred, mirrored, enabled globally and internationally by these, you know, apparently very respectable first world institutions. Yeah. yeah. And you talk, which seems to be an important point in the book, about this Ernst Frankel's distinction between the normative and the prerogative state. Can you explain a bit what you mean by that and how it relates to this wider question of, of how money is, is laundered and sloshes around the global system? Yeah, so I encountered Frankel. I'll explain him in a, in a second. I think he's like an extraordinary man. I encountered him via Donald Trump, who appears in the book as, I would argue, you know, one of the club of kleptocrats. When Trump started to run for office, I happened to be covering the, the murder of Joe Cox by, you know, Tommy Mayer, that terrible moment. I was, and I was up in Yorkshire 
working on that. And a contact of mine sent me a load of documents just saying, look at all this and look at page 734, the name Donald Trump. Anyway, so down, I went down that, that, that rabbit hole and that led me to these, led me to these, these flows of sort of clandestine flows of money from the former Soviet Union, Kazakhstan, Russia, some interest in Ukraine connected to the Kremlin and how that money had flowed into Donald Trump's real estate career and how actually it sustained him. He's a hopeless, failed businessman. But the combination of this, this money from the world's great engine of dirty money, the former Soviet Union, flowing into Trump and a, you know, a reality TV career where he could you know, play the part of a successful tycoon. That's what enabled him to run for president. And that's why he behaved as a kleptocrat in office. I think I don't think Putin, I don't think Putin necessarily needs some file of comprobat locked in his drawer of extravagant scenes of prostitutes in Moscow hotels. Trump has been sustained by this money for a long time. He knows where his bread is buttered and he behaved like a kleptocrat in office. Now, looking into some of these flows of money took me to Kazakhstan and to an extraordinary battle between a guy called Mukhtar Ablyazov, who appears in the book, who, depending on who you believe, is either the sort of the Bernie Madoff of Central Asia or the Nelson Mandela of Central Asia or something in between the two. And his transnational feud with Nazarbayev, the Kazakh, the corrupt Kazakh dictator, and this feud plays out in Western Europe with all manner of spies and lawyers fighting it out. And in the course of digging into this money that flows into Trump, which is connected to Ablyazov, I met Ablyazov's sort of chipper Canadian lawyer, Peter Salas. And he said he'd been working in kleptocracies for a long time. He'd actually involved in some of the early quixotic attempts to install the rule of law in in, in uh, post-Soviet Russia. And he'd been involved in, in the defence of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the kind of, the great oligarch that Putin defenestrated to demonstrate his control over oligarchs. And Salah said that as he was trying to understand this world, he'd been given a copy of this book, The Dual State, by Ernst Frankel. And Frankel is this extraordinary man. He fought for the German army in the First World War. And then he went back to Germany and he, he, he worked as a, a lawyer. And he worked as a lawyer defending sometimes trade unionists and others. And he carried on working as a lawyer into the 30s. And this is particularly remarkable because he was Jewish. And right through the early explosions of anti-Semitism, Frankl was still practising law. And what he did was he, he, he essentially, he did a study of Nazi jurisprudence, which may sound insane because we remember sort of the late Nazi period, totalitarianism, but for a while, Hitler's rule coexisted with the, something that looked like the rule of law. And that's what allowed capitalism to keep going because there were, there were rules through which an economy could function. Frankel started sort of sneaking around the main library. And there's a wonderful moment when he starts to, he, he, he tries to use diversionary tactics. So he orders up all sorts of books that are completely irrelevant to what he's looking at. But he also sneaks in a few, which are kind of records of the legal judgments being taken by judges all across Germany and the intervention of the SS in the legal process. And he comes up with this idea of a dual state where on the one hand, you have the rule of law, you have perfectly normal seeming legal processes with judges giving judgments. But then you have, and he calls that the normative state. But then in the shadows, you have the prerogative state. That's essentially Hitler's machine. And what it can do is whenever it wants to, it can reach out and pluck someone it deems undesirable from the normative state and drag them away into the prerogative state where there obviously is no rule of law, where there's the the concentration camp and the death squad. And it's the coexistence of these two things that Frankl writes about in this amazing book, The Dual State, which he, he then smuggles along with himself out of Germany um, shortly before Kristallnacht. And what the Canadian lawyer, Peter Salas, realised, you know, decades later, as, he, as he's watching Putin operate, and then later as he's watching other kleptocratic dictators operate, is that the dual state's being recreated Right. So there's a legitimate face 
to these regimes. And often they're outside their own countries. So look at how the oligarchies work. They rely on corrupt power at home. They amass massive wealth. I mean, some of these guys are just straight up gangsters. I've met some of them. You know, they are literally straight out of the mafia. And others are you know, family members of, of dictators. You know, they export this wealth to the rule of law states, to the normative states of the West, precisely because they have the rule of law. And, then, and this loot that has been looted in lawlessness can then enjoy the protection of the rule of law, where these, these, these oligarchs and these, these, these allies of kleptocrats can use the finest lawyers from the City of London to defend themselves. But what they're ultimately depending on is a prerogative state back home, right? Which is corrupt rule, corrupt cabals, the Nazarbayev one in Kazakhstan, the Putin one in Russia. This goes for, let's say, the Kabila regime in Congo. It goes for the regimes in Venezuela, Iran, Saudi Arabia. The list is long and the technique is the same. They enjoy the wielding the rule of law to shield their interests in the West. But back home, they are reliant on regimes that chop up journalists they don't like, that in Kazakhstan allow their security forces to conduct massacres of the sort I went and pieced together for the book, that in, in, in Congo pillaged the state so completely that the children of the East who, who sit above these vast mineral resources that are being plundered every day, they are starving to death. This is what the prerogative state really does. And it's what these kleptocrats ultimately depend on for their power. Actually, a point you make that I thought was quite interesting in, now I'm going to mispronounce his name, Nazarbayev's great rival as a... Abayazov. Abayazov, sorry, that was his name. Where you say when, they, when they're in, he's being investigated, it, it becomes clear that he's salted away many, many millions, hundreds of millions, you know, in the West... But as you say, this, is, this could either look like your basic exporting of a kleptocratic goodies or exactly what any sensible, honest person would do in order to get his money, you know, perfectly reasonably acquired money out of the reach of the prerogative state in Kazakhstan. Right. The, the, quite. It's and a this sort of Schrodinger's, where... Schrodinger's shell company. <laughs> hundred percent. That's brilliant. Yeah. And this is why the legal system in the West goes completely haywire when, when, this, when these kleptocratic power struggles get translated into it, because it just sort of says, does not, this does not compute. It is, it is indeed both of these things. Abiyazov grew vastly rich in the kleptocratic system, and he has also tried to challenge the dictator and be pursued right out. I mean, there, there, are, there, you know, there is actually, in Abiyazov's case, what we could call Schrodinger's court, I suppose. I mean, in London, Abiyazov was pursued by a law firm acting for the Kazakh regime, which was pushing and pushing and pushing for the, course, for the court to force him to reveal all his assets. Because what they're saying is, Abiyazov is a thief. He's a thief. You know, we must bring him to justice. And the civil courts largely agreed, and they were pushing Abiyazov to reveal all his assets. And he's saying, but hang on a second, if I reveal all my assets, the dictator back home is going to know where they are and is going to seize them. I can't do that. You know, leaving aside a second for the the question of how cleanly or otherwise Abliazov did make his fortune, he is nonetheless being targeted by a corrupt dictator. And what he does is he runs away. He flees. He goes to ground. And he's found to be in contempt of court and sentenced to, to jail in the UK. As I understand it, that sentence is still pending. And he pops up in France. He's, he's hunted down by some, by, by some sort of uh, former special forces guys working for a private intelligence agency. But in France, he makes the same case. He says, hang on a second. I'm being persecuted here. I'm being hunted by a corrupt dictator. And he's held in jail for a long time in France. At one stage in fleury Maragis, you know, on the outskirts of Paris, which I better know from my time covering terrorist attacks. You know, that's where the big terrorists who get caught get stuck. Anyway, Abliazov's in there and being painted as a terrorist by Kazakhstan. And the highest administrative court in France, the Court de Cassation, eventually sides with Abliazov and says, yes, these attempts to extradite him, they're politically motivated. So those are the two rulings, the UK and France, both, you know, normative states. They've taken completely opposite views of the same question. And in the meantime, you know, in all of these things, there's a terrible human cost. I mean... There's a, there's a 
a really haunting moment, I think, in the book where Abdiazov's wife and child, right? No child chooses to be born into a, into, into, into a family of vast wealth acquired in kleptocracy and actually seems to ruin a lot of children's lives. Anyway, this particular child, Abdiazov's, one of Abdiazov's daughters, was with her mother on the outskirts of Rome and suddenly a squad of Italian police knocked down the door, grabbed them, bundled them onto a private plane which takes off and heads back towards Kazakhstan. You know, this is a place where Abdiazov's already done time in essentially a gulag. This is a place where other opposition figures turn up dead. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these ridiculous situations where people have declared suicides with three bullet wounds in their body, this kind of thing. That kind of, that's how Nazarbayev and his regime operate. Now, Abdiazov's wife and youngest daughter have been piled onto this plane. And, you know, his, the people who were working with him in, in Europe scramble to Rome to try to work out what's, what's happening. And they're, they're watching on this app, uh, a plane tracking app, as the, the little plane icon kind of ticks eastwards and desperately trying to work out what's happened. And what they, what they work out is that the, the, the Kazakh regime has used perfectly legal means, right? It's gone to Interpol, the kind of global police body, and it's put out a red notice, which is this, you know, th- this alert that's meant to be used for, for, for you know, genuine fugitives. If, you know, if a, if a murderer has fled the UK, you could put out a red notice to every member of Interpol and say, if you... If you we, 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 we believe this character, Leith, has done some terrible things. Could you please stop him at your airports and bring him home? But what's happened in this case is they've put out a red notice. The Kazakh police authorities have put out a red notice. It's gone to the Italian police authorities. It's got the backing of a state, Kazakhstan, UN-recognised state. And it says, please grab this guy, Abliazov. It doesn't include how they know, but it turns out they know because they've used another private intelligence agency to, um, to hunt him. It's a public-private partnership. Essentially, yeah, and they uh, and they know where he is, and they also say, look, if if he's not there, but his wife and daughter are there, we think they've committed immigration offences. So the Italian police respond quite properly and say, okay, this is a request from from the the, the law enforcement agencies of another state. We'll go and pick these guys up. Now it emerges that there's been all sorts of foul play in the Italian system, and it becomes a huge scandal in Italy. But on the face of it, this was just using you know, genuine legal techniques to kidnap a wife and daughter and to kidnap a, a, a woman and her child. And they, they end up back in Kazakhstan. They only get released when the scandal in Italy becomes so awful that Nazarbayev has to let them go. But my, my point here is Dirty Bunny has two terribly damaging effects. One is it, it sustains these corrupt regimes that rule with fear and violence over their own people. But also it has a corrupting effect where it arrives. Yeah, it has a, a corrupting effect in the West. It's not normal money. It's kind of liquid, corrupt power. And it, it starts to use the legal system, the, well, in that case, the Interpol system, but also, you know, look at what it's doing to our, our legal system. It's essentially using certain reputation management law firms to censor the free press and to to shield really powerful, influential people from fair democratic scrutiny. In, you know, it, it's, it's bleeding into our political system. I mean, look at these big donors to the Tories and others. It, it, it's, a, it's, it's feeding into our cultural sphere and to our universities. And it has a corrupting effect, not just where it's plundered, but where it arrives. And speaking of, you know, reputational laundering, I mean, you, you mentioned, well, you, you, you didn't mention, but it's, it's kind of, hangs over this, you know, Gerhard Schroeder's role, you know, on, on the board of Russian oil company. But also there's a very inglorious cameo from our former Prime Minister Tony Blair in this book, where in the very near aftermath of a massacre, I mean, I don't think there's any, any other way to describe it, it's a, no, it's a striking mining village. Yeah. He helps Nazarbayev deliver a speech to Cambridge in which he essentially presents himself as the the great civilized Western hope of the of stability in Kazakhstan. Now, it doesn't look good for him. How much do you think he will have really understood he, who was in bed with at that point? I mean, how how do you read Blair's <laughs> I don't think role he in this? Possibly been under any illusions. 
I mean, he's no fool, Blair, whatever else it may be. That, the massacre at Jan Ozen. Okay, there's pretty tight media controls in Kazakhstan. But within days of that massacre, Human Rights Watch and others were getting out the, the, the basic information about what had gone on. That the, the security forces had just shot up a square full of protesters. And, you know, talking about it now, calling to mind the scene that was depicted to me, that, you know, that, that, from the survivors and from people who were tortured in the aftermath of it. I mean, what... One of the things that's so appalling about this and about Blair's role here is essentially the Kazakh regime used two techniques to try to rewrite the history of what happened there, starting immediately. The first technique was torture. So they rounded up the surviving strikers, they rounded up their supporters, they rounded up, in some cases, bystanders. And the Khan Bey, which is like the KGB, the successor agency to the KGB, part of the corrupt regime's apparatus. They used some techniques of just lying people in very cold water, freezing cold water in a basement, walking up or down on them. With the, 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 the men, they would sometimes be, they would use kind of sexual degradation, sodomizing people with metal bars. With some of the women, they would use the threat to bring their daughters in and rape them. They would read lists of their families. They would, they would asphyxiate people with, with plastic bags. And this, the, the purpose of all of this, you know, these I've heard this firsthand from the people who went through it. The purpose of all of this was just to dox a history, to be able to have a sort of a, a, a faked show trial in a kangaroo court a few weeks later in which the survivors confess to starting the violence themselves. Right, so that's the first way in which history is doctored. But you can't torture the audience in a sort of Cambridge Lecture Theatre into believing or, well, or professing an alternative reality. You have to do use slightly more subtle techniques. So, you know, shortly after the massacre, so I'll say that again. Shortly after the massacre, Nazarbayev is due to give this lecture in Cambridge, this big speech. So there's this extraordinary document, which is a letter written to Nazarbayev shortly after the Janosan massacre. And shortly before his Cambridge speech, which gives really professional advice on how to approach this, how to, you can't just ignore this massacre, but you have to spin it. And you have to frame it in such a way that it's going to go down well with Western audiences. And the way to do that is to talk about the thing that Western audiences like most, which is stability. Right? <laughs> this is, this is, uh, this is the, the the thing the world most craves, the Western world, and certainly since kind of nine eleven, this has been our our great thing. We don't like risk, we like stability, and we like stable regimes, as we call them, ignoring how they maintain that hold. And so this letter is obviously from a you know a master of communication, uh, and Nazarbayev goes on to to model his speech that he gives to Cambridge in 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 this way. <laughs> There's a handwritten sign off to the letter that just says. Very, with the very best wishes, I look forward to seeing you in London, yours ever, Tony Blair. Now, I'm, I'm pretty sure that Blair wasn't paid a fee for that letter, uh, and, and, and he and his organisation are very good at sort of obfuscating how precisely he makes money through his consultancies, but it, it's, it's true that he's, he and his consultants have been in Kazakhstan, have been doing work there, and then, you know, on the side, here he is, giving this advice to Nazarbayev. And that, 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 I just thought that was so galling, the way that, you know, this is the parallel, the, the, the way that he crafts his speech in Cambridge is the kind of the normative state version of altering history. And back home, you've got the prerogative state version going on in torture chambers. Now, I, I mean, I'm being maybe naive here, but I want to try and get a sense from you of how you read this. I mean, because... I would like at least to believe that, say, a former prime minister would not simply think if the fee's right, I will, or even if there's no fee, you know, I'm, I'm interested in laundering the, relation, the, the reputation of a blood-soaked dictator, you know, I'm a taxi, whatever, I'm for hire, and has no moral engagement at all. I would like to think, OK, he has a rationale for the way he's conducting himself and the many arms of the normative state that do, like the FCA, like the, you know, the, the 
various courts and lawyers who, who are involved in laundering all this dirty money. Is there a case that they'd be making that they'd say either stability is important, you know, geopolitically, the bigger picture is that, you know, in the words of, I think, Dean Acheson, you know, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. Or is there a sort of hope that effectively, rather than dirty money corrupting the normative state, the integration of kleptocracies into Western normative institutions will, in the long run, normalise, civilise, extend the rule of law, that effectively the contamination will go that way rather than this way? That is absolutely the strategy. If you're quoting Dean Edgerton, I ain't going to quote Blackadder, if I may, and say that there's one tiny flaw in that plan, which is that it's bollocks. Blair was, in fact, central to this vast act of hubris in the 90s and noughties, when the West, and, you know, you go back and read sort of George Bush Sr.'s speeches around the end of the Cold War, and the the astonishing hubris of them. And this just this, this carries on into Clinton and Blair. The idea that the West was going to march into the ruins of the Soviet empire with a few consultants and accountants and bankers and lawyers and remake it in our own image and install a liberal capitalist democracy. And... I mean, essentially, that's what that's what you're talking about, isn't it? This that, that's the that is the Blair position to say we engage constructive um, engagement, constructive engagement, exactly. We, we we engage with these leaders of these regimes and we gradually pull them into a kind of rules based global order. Now, I think, especially as we watch the tanks roll into Ukraine, that we're waking up to how catastrophically wrong we got that and how what's actually happening is the reverse, is that through this engagement, the kleptocracies are starting to remake the democracies in their own image. You know, look how long Blair and other Western leaders persisted in arguing that Putin was, you know, a partner in democracy, a genuine statesman. This is once, you know, journalists are being murdered, his opponents are being murdered. Bombs are going off suspiciously in, in apartment blocks. This is after Putin has presided over the slaughter in Chechnya. I mean, even after Litvinenko, right? Was that 2005? Even after Putin has used chemical weapons in a London hotel on a, a man who, yes, was an ex-KGB officer, but incidentally, was, was, Litvinenko was digging into corruption. That's what he was digging into. Even after that, we, we continue to maintain... This, 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 this fantasy that we are slowly drawing Putin's regime and others like it into the democratic world. It, it, you know why we have to maintain this, of course, is because, and there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a book by Leif Wenner called Blood Oil. He's, a, he's, a, he's an LSE professor of philosophy. And it's got this brilliant central idea, which is that essentially the entire global economy, certainly the, the raw ingredients parts of it, is trafficking in stolen goods. I mean, almost everywhere we get our oil and gas from is run by you know, criminal cabals. That would obviously include Saudi Arabia, Russia, Nigeria in a slightly different way. But you know, the, the list of, of oil and gas exporters and mineral exporters run by essentially gangster states. It's vastly longer than you know, the other side. The list of dem- democracies, which is essentially Norway. No one in Kazakhstan or Russia or Congo, has ever given consent for these corrupt regimes to sell the stuff that lies beneath the country's soil. I mean, there's never been a free election in any of these places. But in order to be able to buy this stuff with a straight face and, and, and you know, invest, invest our pensions in ExxonMobil and Shell and Rio Tinto and all the rest of them, we have to, we have to entertain this fallacy that these, the, the, the dictator of Equatorial Guinea has a legitimate right to hand out oil rights and that the dictator in Congo has the right to, 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 to dole out mining licenses to FTSE 100 companies so they can dig for copper. I mean, it's all nonsense, isn't it? <laughs> but we have, to, but we, 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 have to, we, we have to persist with that fallacy. Otherwise, you basically can't have the global economy. The, the, the problem now is that we've realised that this wasn't the consequences weren't entirely exported 
they weren't just visited on the heads of the starving children in eastern Congo or the massacred w- workers in, in Kazakhstan, that it's boomeranging back on us, right? Because we've fattened these dictators. We've helped them create these, these fortified ruling elites that are untouchable by their own people. And we've helped them do that not only by paying the bribes to them, buying the commodities from them, but also then by allowing them to insulate themselves even further by shifting their wealth offshore into our own economies. Now, having tumbled to this, because obviously this is a, you know, slightly outside the scope of your book, but you know, you're someone who will have a, have a strong and well-informed view on this. What do you think we can do about it at this stage? I mean, how much do you think the sanctions regime that we've put in is going to be able to you know, have any real effect in, you know, the great kleptocracy of all Russia. I mean, I think, you know, one point that's that's been made, and I don't know what your view on it is, is that these oligarchs, certainly the Russian oligarchs now, for quite a long time, I mean, about 20 years, they've been formally kind of excluded from Russian politics, and that was the deal. So is, is pinching their yachts going to make a jot of difference? There's kind of two categories of oligarchs now. And I think the, the ones you're talking about there, let's call them sort of oligarchs, Part one, these are the guys who made their fortunes really in the 90s in a, in a kind of total chaotic free-for-all. And yes, when Putin came to power, he said, There's, here's the deal. You guys can keep all this money, but I'm the boss now. Yeah, I'm in charge. And you come anywhere near politics, cut you off at the knees. And one of them did, Khodorkovsky, who appears in Kleptopia, and Putin said, OK, I mean what I say. You know, he said, let's not forget he's a hard-boiled ex-KGB officer and sort of career thief. And he did just that. You know, Khodorkovsky, was, his, his huge business empire was confiscated and he was chucked off to a Siberian camp. And as I you know, relate in the book, those who, who stuck with him, one of them was essentially, essentially tortured to death in a Russian prison. And from that moment, Putin starts creating oligarchy part two, which are old KGB comrades, people from the security agencies, and people just plucked from obscurity, you know, old mates of his from the judo mats and things like this. And unlike the first lot of oligarchs, they're not usually anyway, building up private companies or things that sort of look like private companies, even if they remain to some extent interwoven with the state. The, these, these, these are kind of state oligarchy now. So they're put in charge of the big state companies, the oil companies, the pipeline companies, and so on. So they are much more knitted directly into Putin's Kremlin. And again, he will, you know, he behaves like Henry VIII in Wolf Hall, right? So he, will, he, he keeps con- control by allowing power struggles to go on within his court, if you like, within his kleptocratic court. And by, you know, occasionally and seemingly almost arbitrarily disgracing or banishing some, some, some rich figure or other. So the question now is, do sanctions work on the regime like that? As you say, it's hard to see how the sort of part one oligarchs, the Amabrovichs and so on, although they do clearly still have these important relationships to Putin's regime, it's hard to see how confiscating their yachts and making it hard for them to own football clubs, while perhaps you know, vindicated, it's hard to see how that changes Putin's course. It's also true that some of the Mark II oligarchs are being targeted. So people like Igor Sechin, Putin's old enforcer, who runs the state oil company Rosneft now. You know, one of his yachts has been grabbed and so on. What are we actually trying to achieve? It's not really articulated. It's either that this kind of pressure will lead these oligarchs, you know, Mark I and Mark II, to push Putin to change course, or that they will realise that their, their life is going to become so different from what they've expected that they're going to end up not swatting around in Monte Carlo but living in sort of some sort of big cold North Korea that they would try to change the boss they would conspire to remove Putin and put someone else there I think the reason why that doesn't work so well is that Putin's been very good at doing what the most successful kleptocrats doing which is what you know a godfather does I mean Putin's not a character out of James Bond he's a character out of the godfather let's not forget that corruption is the heart of all of this and he is bound the fates of the, the sort of the Mark II oligarchs, the Putin oligarchs, so closely to him that I think they must know that if he goes down, they probably go down too. 
And that makes you think it's hard to imagine a scenario in which they decide to remove him. It is also the case, I think, that we're starting to waken up to a much bigger picture here, which is essentially to do with a showdown between kleptocracy and, crucially, kleptocratic alliances. I mean, this is what, something I try to really show in the book, how you get these secret alliances forged with dirty money used to maintain kleptocratic power that connect you know, uh, uh, the, the money to rig an election in Zimbabwe with you know, uh, a, a London-listed mining corporation with some Central Asian oligarchs and a Wall Street hedge fund. You know, these, these alliances are, falling, uh, are forming and they are essentially what they advance is the rule of the few, the gathering of power and wealth to the few. And that's coming up against the rule of the many. Democracy, it's as simple as that. And Ukraine is this horrifying front that's opened. But this, this, this kind of unconventional, undeclared war between kleptocracy and democracy has been going on for a while, I try to show in the book. And when you start to see it like that, you start to think, well, if we put Trump in the kleptocrat category, and I think we have to, then what happens if he stages this comeback, which is actually, I think, not altogether unlikely. I mean, I think there's, there's one version which says that he's, he's almost a favourite for the next US presidential election, possibly abetted by Republicans in Congress trying to help him steal it. And then you've got the great poles of power, Washington, Moscow and Beijing, all controlled by kleptocrats of one form or another. And where's, where does that leave democracy? Well, alas, we're out of time, but a, a suitably grim note to end on. <laughs> well, I would, yes, yeah, sorry. It, it, it is grim, this stuff, and I think we have to look it in the eye, but I, I would also say there are, th- th- this sort of stirring of our realisation of this a, as a result of the nightmare in Ukraine, that's what had to happen. And, I mean, look how quickly we're moving to break our... our, our, our channels of money to, to, to Putin's regime. Look how quickly we're, we're saying, actually, we're going to stop buying Russian oil and gas. It's obviously pretty good for the environment, but it's also tremendous for trying to break off our compl- complicity in kleptocracy. The question now is really, are we going to target one kleptocrat or are we going to see that the danger is the, is, the, is the whole thing and look to you know really strengthening our anti-corruption laws and, and, and insulating our political parties from this money and, and so on? Tom Burgess? Thank you very much. Thank you, Sam. You were listening to The Spectator's Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.